The Other by Nicola Griffith The city of Middenheim reared up on its fist of rock, blocking the glitter of weak autumn sunlight and throwing a shadow across the line moving patiently up the slope of the viaduct towards the east gate. The air creaked with harness. Iron-rimmed wheels rang softly against stone. Stefan stood up in his stirrups to get a better look at the jam of carts and foot-travellers. It's more than two weeks yet until carnival. He pulled at his reins in irritation. The horse snorted and curveted. Stefan, his father said mildly. Stefan relaxed his grip a little, patted the horse on the neck. Herr Dr. Hocken nodded approval. Stefan's attention wandered. He stared down at the back of a craftsman's neck. It was creased with dirt. The rough, leather jerkin had rubbed a sore into the skin. It ought to be cleaned with good lye soap before it festered. He imagined the edges of the sore swelling, glistening red and tight as the poisons accumulated. He could almost taste the thick, sweet smell of decay. His horse danced, sending a stone skittering. Stefan swallowed bile. It's going to take longer crawling up this viaduct than to ride from Hunkse. He tried not to think of the man's neck, swelling, swelling. We should have ridden on last night and not bothered staying at the inn. The gates would have been closed at that hour. They would have recognised you, perhaps. But the watch might be a little overzealous about its duties at this time of year. Stefan looked at the sunlight gleaming on his father's soft tanned boots and brown riding velvets, and wondered why a physician important enough to be summoned all the way to Grubentreich to minister to the son of Grand Duke Leopold would not be prepared to force the watch to recognise him, whatever the hour. Privately, he suspected that it was because his father was getting too old to sit his horse comfortably for any length of time. Perhaps we should have taken a coach from the inn at Hunksa. His father's shoulders hunched in anger, but he spoke quietly, without looking up from his reins. You might be eighteen, Stefan, and old enough to have applied for your own physician's licence, but it seems you do not yet have sufficient manners to mind me to grant it. Stefan knew an apology would only make things worse. As it was, his father would probably delay the license for a week or so. He stayed quiet, and concentrated on trying to ignore the ache of two days' riding. Ahead, the faint background noise grew louder. Stefan thought he could hear shouting. Sounds as though there's a fight in front. He stood up in his stirrups, but could not see what was happening. The shouting got louder, a ripple of movement spread outward, reaching them in the form of a rustling of clothes as people shifted from foot to foot. Several scrambled up onto their carts to get a better look. Hi, Stefan called. Can you see what's happening? Someone has his wagon turned right over on its side. Ask him if anyone's been hurt, his father said. Can't tell, the man shouted, but the watch are coming out. He paused. They're coming this way. Tell them we're physicians. 
Under the direction of two members of the watch, the wagon had already been hauled upright by unwilling bystanders. A guardswoman led them through the crowd. The air was sharp with the reek of wine, which still poured from the shattered barrel. A man, wearing the coarse clothes and leather gauntlets of a wagoner, lay on his back in shadow. A woman knelt at his side, gently probing his shoulder. Herr Hocken handed his bag to Stefan and looked around. He walked over to a flat-bedded cart. Lift him up here, he said to the guardswoman. The woman kneeling at the man's side stood up, shadow lines slicing across her body diagonally from collarbone to hip. One knee of her pale green trousers was stained with wine, like a bruise. A cotton scarf, the same colour as the wine stain, was tied around her upper left arm. She was wearing a light cloak against the autumn chill, but it was slung back over her shoulders, out of the way, and pinned with a wooden brooch. She was young, seventeen perhaps, but fatigue or something else made her seem older. Her hair, light brown, and just long enough to be tied back, was dull with travel dust. He should not be moved until his leg is splinted, she said. I need to get a good look at him, my dear. His shoulder may be broken too. He'll be taken good care of, don't worry. Are you his daughter? No. I see. He turned to the guardswoman. Lift him up, please. Stefan turned away from the injured man's pain as two guardsmen heaved him onto the cart. The woman stopped to pick up a leather satchel which she slung over her back. Stefan recognised it as the kind of thing travelling musicians carried, and wondered how she knew about splinting bones. She saw Stefan watching her. He blushed, but walked over. You don't agree with my father's methods? No. Don't you know who my father is? No. Herr Dr. Franz Hockham. So, now I know his name, as well as the fact he doesn't know his job. He's the most well-respected physician in Mittenheim. In fact, my father is the representative of the Guild of Physicians and a member of the Commission for Health, Education and Welfare. Then, if he is not ignorant, he has caused that wagoner suffering willfully. That man is poor, you could tell by looking at him. If we treated him here, we'd get no fee. So that cart will take him to the Temple of Shalia, where the initiates take charity caches. Later, if he turns out he has got funds, then my father would be pleased to treat him. As it is, my father is probably paying for the use of that cart out of his own pocket. He's too generous. I see. It was the exact tone his father had used earlier. We could prosecute you for practising healing without a licence he said. You wouldn't. It was a statement. Who authorises these licences? My father. He makes recommendations to the commission from the applications received by the guild. Why? Do you want to apply? She studied him a moment. Perhaps. And then she turned, and forced her way into the crowd. Stefan was left staring at the people she had pushed past. He felt foolish. 
and did not even know her name. The night was mild and damp. Stefan walked along the Gartenweg slowly, enjoying the smell of grass and wet leaves. He stopped and listened to the unusual quiet. When he set up his practice, he would buy a house somewhere in clean, orderly Nordgarten, overlooking Moors Park, where it was always peaceful. He smiled. Today his father had handed him a parchment, stamped in blue and fastened with the commission seal. He could set up his practice wherever he liked. He walked north and then east along Ostgarden, leaving the quiet behind. Bergenbahn heaved with people. It was nearly midnight, but with only a week to carnival, hawkers and pleasure-seekers lit lamps against the dark and did business while they could. Stefan stooped through the doorway of the red moon. A fire blazed at one end, and torches sputtered around a stage at the other. The room was full of noise. His cloak steamed in the heat. Stefan! He waved and made his way over to his friend's table. They poured him wine while he took off his cloak. Welcome here, Dr. Stefan, one of them said, handing him a leather cup. Stefan grinned. Thank you, Joseph. He sipped and leaned back in his chair to get a good look at the stage, letting the heavy wine slide over his tongue. Tonight was his night. He wanted to savour every moment. To one side of the stage, a heavy-set man was turning his rebeck, while another sat cross-legged, running through some repetitive tune on the pipes. Stefan missed the point at which the rebeck began to thread the room with a counter-melody. It was just there, weaving the audience in tight. Two women began to dance. They moved easily, perfectly in time, ignoring the audience. To Stefan, it seemed that they danced for each other swaying in and out of each other's reach, but never touching. He watched, fascinated, as they stepped in close and silk skirts slid up the smooth muscle of their thighs at the same time. They held that position, close enough to feel the heat of each other's skin for several heartbeats. When the music finished, Stefan clapped as loudly as the rest. Several of his friends threw money onto the stage. Eva always hired the best entertainers in the city. And that was just the first act. He filled his goblet and took a long swallow, waving the wine boy over for more. Look, Joseph nodded over to a tall woman in a cloak who had just arrived. Eberhauer's here. Jana Eberhauer, the deputy high wizard, took her seat next to the owner of the Red Moon, who smiled and stroked her arm then stood, gesturing towards the stage. Looks like Eva's going to introduce the next one herself. For our next performer, she's young, but very, very talented, Katja Rain. A young woman walked onto the stage, carrying a pair of hand drums. Stefan leaned forward. It was the girl he had met by the east gate, the healer. Her loose trousers and sleeveless shirt were soft black. The scarf tied around her arm was black too. Her feet were bare. 
she sat down and settled the drums between her legs. Tonight we sit, well fed and snug, with the carnival moons overhead and wine lying warm in our bellies. There were a few cheers and shouts, but tonight I will sing of a different place. A village where hungry people sit in their houses roofed with straw, while autumn hardens to winter. The audience was silent, while Katya's hands moved over the drums, stroking and tapping, cupping the sounds, bringing them to life. They spoke of ground brittle with frost, of breath steaming in air bright as glass, of a deep and waiting cold. Power built under her fingers, her eyes glittered with reflected torchlight, and she swayed slightly, her head moving from side to side with the beat. Shadows caught and dissolved on planes and ridges of her cheek and neck. Her fingers moved blindly, gently as moths. She sang of a young woman kneeling on the floor of an old cow byre, feeding a fire with chips of goat dung. She was excited, impatient. Finally, satisfied with the height of the flames, she opened a small leather pouch and slid a stone onto her palm. It was dull and red. Using tongs, she held the stone over the flames. Now, she would see if she was right, if it was heart's blood stone. It would glow in the heat, and then, cooled in wine, it would be a treasure beyond price. The wine could be used in many healing tinctures, drop by precious drop, or so she had been told by her great-grandmother. With a flat crack, the stone exploded. She coughed in the smoke. Her left arm was stinging, and when her eyes stopped running, she saw that it was smeared with blood. A sliver of stone must have caught her. She examined the charred dust on the end of the tongs. Whatever the stone had been, it was not heart's blood. That night, she woke in pain. Her arm was hot and swollen. Careful not to wake her sister, who she shared her pallet with, she slid from under the sleeping furs and went outside into the moonlight. Around the puncture hole, her arm was puffy and tender. There was still something in there. It would have to come out. The next day, the arm was sore where she had cut into the flesh, but it no longer felt unnaturally heavy and hot. The woman wondered what the stone could have been. That night, she woke up again. She unwound the bandage. The arm was healing well, but she felt strange, light-headed. Outside, she did not feel the cold. It seemed that voices and hot breath whispered over her skin. Her body sang with excitement. She ran, laughing and mad, through the freezing night. It was dawn before she returned to her family's cottage, exhausted and bewildered. 
with blood on her hands and lips. Frightened as she was, she had the wit to wash herself before she lay down to get what rest she could. The young woman tried everything, all her healing arts, to fight the madness growing inside her, but her efforts were useless. The stone which had shattered into slivers had been warp-stone, and one speck of warp-stone dust could wrench away sanity and mutate a body into something not human. Day after day she fought the urges swelling up inside her. At night, when the dark influence pulled at her mind, she lost all memory of what she did. When she did sleep, her dreams were full of killing and tearing. Under the scarf tied about her left arm, her skin healed in a scale pattern, like a snake. And then the morning came, when she woke from her madness to find her whole arm covered in green scales and her nails hooked into claws. Inside the cottage, her entire family lay with their throats ripped out stiffening in their own blood. She felt no doubt. She had done this thing. She was no longer human. By noon, she had laid a huge fire in the centre of the cottage. She fastened the shutters from the outside. Then she went inside and locked the heavy door. Using a twig, she pushed the key under the door out of reach. Now there was no way out. She lit the fire and burned herself to death. Katya sat silently on the stage, her drums beside her. The glitter was gone from her eyes. Jana Eberhauer, the deputy high wizard, watched her intently. The whole room was still. She had made them look into the face of a fear they lived with day by day, the horror that was Warpstone, its power to pervert healthy daughters and well-loved sons into mutated forms, who, shunned by law-abiding people, lost their sanity and turned to the worship of unspeakable gods. In silence, Katya picked up her drums, and left the stage. The audience stirred, then began to applaud. Coins showered the stage. Wine boys scraped the money into a pile for her to collect later. Stefan drained his cup, filled it and drank again. Hi, he called a wine boy over. Parchment and quill, quickly. When he had finished, he folded it, scrawled Catch's name on the front, and gave it to the waiting boy along with a shilling. The boy smirked, but threaded his way past the crowded tables and through a curtain at the back. A few moments later, Katya stood by his table, holding the note. Did you write this? She tossed it onto the table. I can't read. It says up... Uh, it asks, would you like to join me for some wine? She sat down. I enjoyed your performance. Thank you. Yes, 
though I've, I've never heard of heart's blood soon. Before she died, my grandmother's mind wandered. She talked about strange red stones and how good fairies would reward hard work with pots of gold all in the same breath. When you're young, you believe anything, especially if you want to believe it. I could almost believe that you sang from knowledge. Only almost, she asked. Stefan's friend, Joseph, looked at the scarf tied around Katya's left arm. Clever. Nice bit of deception, that, but maybe it's not deception, he said boldly. Maybe you're really a mutant. He was drunk. She looked amused, not shocked. Have I sung my song so convincingly that I must take off my scarf to prove I'm not some creature of the night? She turned to Stefan. I'd like that wine now. He beckoned another wine boy. Bring a bottle of wine and a cup for the lady. Make it one of your best and there'll be some coppers in it for you. He handed the boy five gold crowns, then felt embarrassed at his extravagance. I'm celebrating, he told her. I got my license today. I've applied for mine, she said. The wine came before he had to reply. He poured for all of them. Where will you practice? No, no idea yet, he said. You have no real vocation for healing, have you, Stefan? She said quietly. Close up, he saw that her eyes were dull with fatigue and ringed with blue. She seemed thinner. He shrugged. I wouldn't call mixing potions to aid the overtaxed digestions of rich people a holy duty, if that's what you mean. The rich are not the only ones who need care. She looked at him steadily. His nostrils filled with the stench of people lying in their own filth, rotting from inside with disease, and the sound of their thin cries deafened him. His stomach rippled. He did not see the wine boy approach the table. Fraulein Katja, uh, the, the deputy high wizard wishes to speak with you. Without a word, she stood up and followed him. Stefan's hand shook as he reached for his wine. A few tables away, Jana Eberhauer leaned close to Katja, talking softly. Joseph followed his gaze. <laughs> Don't take it too hard, Stefan. She's probably happier with her own kind, he laughed. I wonder how Eva's feeling about this. Stefan turned to look at him, full of revulsion. Who for? He was not sure. Over the next few days, images of Katya haunted Stefan. He saw her as he had the first time by the gate, stained with wine, sure of her skill. He heard her singing, remembered the glittering of her eyes. But he dreamed of a different Katya. A Katya who slipped her arms around him from behind and kissed him until he moaned. And when he turned to reach for her, the arms she held out to him were scaled and taloned. Stefan! Stefan! What catches your interest in here? His father sounded pleased to find him in the room which doubled as library and record repository. Stefan turned round, a scroll pushed through his belt. I was just looking through a few records to see if I could find an 
exact definition of a mutant. The lie came easily. His father looked interested. Exact definition. Can't say I've ever really thought about it. He went over to a cupboard and rummaged around. There might be something in our... Ah, here we are. He dragged a volume from an orderly pile and laid it on a table. Now, let's see. Perhaps uh, I should look. You've always found references for me. Now that I have my licence, I ought to do my own reading, too. His father looked so pleased that Stefan was ashamed of his deception. Well, then, I'll just take what I came for and leave you to it. He gathered up the pile of scrolls on the table. Stefan held the door from him. There have been times when I've doubted you would ever make a physician, Stefan. But perhaps I've been wrong. Perhaps after you all, you will be sorting through this pile of license applications one day. I'm proud of you. Stefan pulled the parchment from his belt and sat down. Application for license. Physician's Guild. Katya Rain, he read. She must have hired a scribe. He scanned the contents. She came from Schonhagen, almost a hundred miles to the south and west. What had made her travel all the way to Middenheim? He tucked the scroll back into his belt and left. It was one of those rare autumn afternoons when the sun streamed clear and warm into the city. Stefan had not bothered with a cloak. He shouldered his way through the crowds along Bergenbahn. With only three days to go until carnival, he was thankful that the red moon was not in the middle of the Altmarkt, where it was certain to be even more crowded. The closer he came to the red moon, the slower he walked. Katya's application rubbed against his skin where it lay hidden beneath his shirt. He did not know what he wanted of her. To talk to her, maybe? Or maybe not. She attracted him, but made him uneasy. By the time he saw the distinctive brick of the red moon, warm against the grey stone of the other buildings, he was considering abandoning the whole idea and walking straight past. The door of the red moon opened, and Katya slipped out, carrying her satchel. She turned down Zauberstrasse, Stefan peered around the corner after her. She had not seen him. He followed. Two-thirds of the way along the street, she turned into an alleyway. She walked swiftly between houses without pausing to look around. She must have travelled this way several times before. She turned again, left, then right, and Stefan almost lost her, just catching a flicker of blue as she went into the back entrance of a big house. He marked the colour of the paintwork and the style of roof tiles. It should be possible to recognise the right house if he worked his way back through the alleys to the front. It was Jana Eberhauer's. He should have known. Eberhauer, the deputy high wizard, and Katya. He felt as though he could not breathe. It took him a few moments to realise that he was shaking with rage, and around and around in his head, like a temple chant, ran the thought. 
He should have known. He should have known. He went round the back again, and settled against a wall where he could see the door, but where he would be out of sight of anyone leaving. No matter how long it took, he would wait. Then he would find out what was going on. By the second hour, the sun was sinking, leaving the alleys in shadow. He stamped his feet to keep them warm, and wished he had worn a cloak. His legs began to ache, and he was hungry. The wall he was leaning on was damp. Doubts gnawed at him. What if she had left by the front door? He pushed it to the back of his mind. The stars were showing. The remains of his rage sat in his stomach like an undigested meal. He would not give up, but he was achieving nothing here. Stefan reached the red moon just before midday. His muscles were stiff and aching, and he wore a cloak against the freezing mist. He hoped he would not have to wait long. This time, she did not carry the satchel with her drums, but a different bag, something a physician might carry. Instead of turning down Zauberstrasse, she walked south along Bergenbahn. It was easy to follow her through the crowds without being seen. It became even busier as she led him along Ostweg. By Marktweg, the crowds had become so dense that he had difficulty keeping her in sight. When they reached the Altmarkt, he moved to within three strides of her back, trusting to luck that she did not look round. Luck almost abandoned him when she went into an apothecary's. Trying to duck out of sight, he crashed backwards into a barrow full of fruit alongside a stall. He panicked when the owner shouted at him, then calmed as he realised Katya would not be able to pick out one noise from another in the din. Fruit sellers hawked their wares. A mother pulled down her child's breeches and held him over the gutter while he shrieked in protest. A woman, passing the mother and child, got splashed and began to shout. Stefan helped the angry stall owner to pick up the fruit. When Katya came out of the shop, she turned out of the altmark towards the old quarter. Stefan's heart thumped. The old quarter was not a safe place to be at any time. There were no crowds to hide behind here. He wished he was carrying a knife, even though he had never used one before except to cut meat. He turned a corner. Alleys led off in all directions. He panicked. Katya was nowhere to be seen. There was no warning. A kick caught him behind the knees and he went down. His arm twisted up his back and a knee on his spine. Stone scraped his jaw as his attacker pulled his head around to get a look at his face. It's you. Katya made a sound of disgust and let him up. Stefan stood up slowly. She had knocked the wind out of him. Are you hurt? No, he managed. Good. Explain why you're following me. He wanted to shout at her, tell her how much he had frightened him. Why are you practising without a licence? he blurted instead. I have applied. It's only a matter of days before I receive the official stamp of approval. 
then your orderly mind can rest from its worries about proper paperwork. He said nothing, remembering the parchment against his ribs. Come with me and see the people I treat, then tell me I need a licence before I lift a finger to help them. He was so close that he could smell the damp wool of her cloak, her sandalwood perfume. Mist stung his scraped chin. She could have broken his neck while he lay on the ground. Unease knotted in his belly. They walked through the worst part of the old quarter. Those I treat are poor, sick, old. They are not gentle people. Prepare yourself for that. Splintered buildings gaped at him like broken teeth, waiting to swallow him, trap him in their rottenness and despair. This way. They climbed over rubble, blocking a doorway. Her sandalwood was not strong enough to counter the smell of filth and neglect. Inside, it was gloomy. Many windows were boarded up. Stefan jumped as a shadow moved nearby. They wonder who you are. She put her bag on the floor near the remains of a staircase and took off her cloak. She gave it to him to hold. Wait here. She climbed the stairs and disappeared into the darkness. Stefan tried to concentrate on the cloak in his hands. It felt rough. When he was rich, he would buy her a cloak of fine, heavy wool, lined with silk. A green cloak, the same colour as the trousers she had been wearing by the east gate. Then he remembered Eberhard. Something moved. Who is it? Sweat wormed down his back. Anyone there? His voice was swallowed by the dark. Something was watching him. A shadow inched its way across the floor towards the dim light. It sat back on its haunches and tried to speak. Panic leapt like lightning up Stefan's spine. He ran. He did not look where he was going. He just ran, pursued by visions of the mutant, with lumpy and misshapen limbs and running sores whose elephantine skin grew too far across its eyes and stretched over its mouth, making speech almost impossible. When Katya found him, he had stopped retching. He pulled himself into a ball. Leave me alone. She squatted down beside him and felt for fever. Keep away from me! He pushed her hand away. After a while, he asked, Why do you do this? Because they need me. Mutants don't need anyone. She was silent so long he thought she was ignoring him. The one who frightened you is called Siggy. He is not a mutant. When he was two years old, his father spilled burning lamp oil on him. The burns were so bad that his arms and legs healed all out of shape, and his skin thickened and grew back in all the wrong places. He can't stand properly and it hurts for him to move around even a little. Without proper attention, his skin dries out and cracks. I can help him with that. Stefan tried to remember Siggy's face, but the memory was slippery. 
he did not know what to think. Burns might explain the disfigurement. Are you telling me the truth? His voice was hoarse. Siggy is not a mutant. He was uncertain. I could still report you for not having a license. It was like a talisman. A ritual chant to dispel confusion. I can help some of them, Stefan. You could too. He wanted to believe her, but his fear was real. She stood up. Come on. She reached down to help him up. Her cloak slid back to reveal the scarf tied around her arm. Fear slammed through him again. Show me. He licked his lips. Show me what's under that scarf. Then I'll help you. She went still. I won't bargain with you. Why not? There'll be things you need. Certain ingredients you won't be able to buy without showing a license. I could get them for you. He pushed himself upright. Show me what's under your scarf. You don't know what you're asking. Show me. When I sing, Stefan, I do more than mouth a few words to a pretty tune. I give an audience mystery, myself an air of otherness. She touched the scarf gently. This is my mystery. Show me. That's the price of my help. She was silent a moment. It may not be what you want to see. She unwound the scarf. Stefan's stomach curled in a tight fist as the last twist of cloth fell free. Look. The arm was perfect and unblemished. Where the scarf had been, the skin was pale. Stefan reached out to touch it with his fingertips. It was warm and smooth. There was no relief. The tension burrowed deeper into his stomach. He did not understand why. He wanted to walk away and never see Katya Rain again, and could not. He had made a bargain. Make me a list of the things you need. I'll deliver them tomorrow. The red moon looked smaller in daylight. It smelled of stale wine and ash. The remains of last night's fire lay in the grate. An elderly woman had gone to tell Katya he was there. Stefan was tense and his head ached slightly. He had not slept well. He flinched when Katya entered the room. She was limping slightly. I tripped over my drums in the dark last night, she said, gesturing at her leg. It's bruised, but nothing a bit of comfrey won't cure. Stefan could not imagine Katya being clumsy. I have everything you asked for. He placed a small sack on the table between them. Thank you. How much do I owe? I don't want your money. Confusion made him abrupt. He did not want to touch anything which had been near her. But she was beautiful. Thank you again, she paused. Would you like a drink while you're here? No, I have to get out. I, I mean, I have to go. 
he retreated ungracefully. He walked slowly along Bergenbahn, not wanting to go home. On the Ostgardenweg, dwarves were building a huge wooden platform overlooking the park. Graf Boris and his family would sit there tomorrow and watch the carnival fireworks. The hammering and hoarse shouts as pieces of timber were lifted into place and fastened together were muffled and unreal. He turned left off the Gartenweg and down Grun Alley, which ran along the southern edge of the Altmarkt. Here he found what he wanted, noise and bright colours to push the fear he did not understand from his mind. He wandered there for hours. As the afternoon began to turn to evening, he found himself standing next to an old woman, watching a sleight-of-hand artist who had set up his table between a flower-barrow and a beer-cellar. The man was pulling eggs and brightly coloured scarves from his mouth and tossing them into the audience. There was scattered applause. He bowed and took a cage from under his table. Inside, a snake hissed. Its tongue licked in and out. Stefan stirred uneasily. The old woman poked him in a friendly fashion. All done with misdirection, she said nodding at the magician, who was holding up the snake while displaying its empty cage, assuring the crowd that there was no hidden trapdoor or false base. What? Stefan said. He was poised on the edge of realisation. I said it's all done with misdirection. While we're looking at the empty cage, he's... Misdirection? Now he knew why there had been no relief at the sight of that unblemished arm. Gods! Misdirection! Here, are you all right? The woman's voice seemed miles away. You're white as a bedsheet. He had been fooled. She had fooled everyone. He had to do something. Tell someone. Jana Eberhauer stood silently by her fire, contemplating the flames. Her hair was loose and she was wearing her bedrobe. "'What are you suggesting?' she asked mildly. "'That perhaps she is not all she seems,' Stefan said carefully. "'And you came to me. "'I don't want anything to happen to her, but if she—' "'He swallowed. "'Mutants are an abomination. "'You're the deputy high wizard.' The curtain screening the room from the sleeping area drew back. Katya limped through, brushing her hair. She looked ill. Stefan stared, immobilised by shock. She had been there all the time. She limped towards him. Keep away from me. Stefan, I'm not evil. Why are you risking so much? he asked Everhauer. You can't help her, nobody can. Yet you came to me to ask for help. Faced with the wizard's calm, he felt foolish and graceless. Katya lowered herself into a chair. He saw how carefully she moved. What's the matter with her? he asked Everhauer. I can still speak for myself, Katya said. 
She reached for a cup of water and took a sip. The story I told, the song, is essentially true in one respect. She put the cup down and began to roll up the bottom of her trousers. It was an obvious effort. Eberhauer moved to help her. Fear flexed like a snake in Stefan's belly. No, he croaked. I don't want to see. Eberhauer looked up from the bandage she was unrolling. You accuse and meddle without knowing anything, she said calmly. Now, you will learn. No! Horror lapped at his reason. I can't! You can. Eberhauer rose and took his hand. He could not resist as she led him over to where Katya leaned back in the chair, her eyes closed in exhaustion. Her right trouser leg was rolled up past the knee. Bloody bandaging lay in a heap on the rug. Stefan looked. There was a slash across the back of her calf, the sort an inexperienced swordsman might make trying to hamstring an opponent. It was a recent injury, beginning to scab over. He frowned. I don't understand. Examine it closely. Around the healing gash, almost too faint to be seen, was a tracery of cracks in a scale pattern. We tried to exercise the speck of warpstone that must still be in there, Eberhauer said, impossibly calm. It's evil, he whispered. Listen to me. Katya is not evil. Warpstone acts on her flesh and its madness pulls at her mind. But that is not evil. As to the madness, she is strong. She resists, still. But her skin! I am not evil, Katya said from the chair. I am not mad. Stefan refused to hear her. He spoke to Eberhauer. But she will be, in the end. Without help? Yes. They were both looking at him. The air was thick and sticky, difficult to breathe. Oh, gods, you want me to do it? You want me to hack at it again, slice into the muscle, bone deep and cut and cut? No, he backed towards the door. It won't work. It just won't work, even if I cut the whole leg off. Eberhauer was silent a moment, watching the flames. Warpstone dust is materialization of chaos matter into solid form. Magic is the manipulation of energies inherent in chaos. She looked at him directly. I am a wizard. This thing is possible. They helped Katya onto the bed. Eberhauer stroked her hair and began to hum, while Stefan gathered what they would need. He rolled up the rug and laid the gloves, bowl, bandages and other things on the floor. The wizard stood, letting the sound build as she raised her arms over her head and down again in a slow circle. She nodded to Stefan. Katya slept. He wiped the leg down and poured raw alcohol over his knife. 
Though he had never cut into living tissue before, he used the knife easily, like a quill, marking the edges of the excision, then sliding the blade in sideways to part skin from muscle. He mopped at the blood. The muscle was red and plump beneath his fingers. He cut into it. Around him, the humming became more insistent, singing through his hands. He stopped at a tight knot of tissue. The vibration in his hands became an angry jangle. This was what he was looking for. He probed at it, eased what looked like a fleck of dirt onto the tip of his knife. This was the focus of all his nightmares. So small. It was glowing. He lifted it out into the air. Eberhauer's humming swelled into a sound thick enough to stand on. Stefan could feel the force of it flowing down his arm, recoiling from the malignancy poised at the end of his knife. His fear became anger, a refusal of the torment of chaos, for his sake, for Katya's sake. He joined his negation to Eberhauer's. The warp stone dimmed and began to smoke curling smaller and smaller until there was nothing left. Stefan sat by the bed and watched her breathe. There were still hollows under her cheekbones, but the dark circles under her eyes were fading. Outside, the first fireworks of carnival stained the sky. Jana Eberhauer came and stood behind him. She'll leave us, won't she? he said. Yes. Where? Where? Back to Schoninghagen? She told me she always wanted to see the north. She will go there, I think, to the snow and ice. You want her to stay. He knew how much the wizard had risked, and perhaps why. I want whatever is right for her, and she has found all she came here for. Not quite. He reached inside his shirt. The scroll of parchment was stamped with Katya's name and sealed with the blue of the commission. He laid it on the coverlet near Katya's hand, stood up. Tell her it might be useful if she ever comes back. And tell her... He looked down at the woman sleeping on the bed. Tell her I plan to work at the temple of Shalya a while. Until I know what I want. He closed the door quietly behind him. And stepped out into the splash of light and colour. Which was carnival. Warhammer Fantasy Roleplay 
was published in the same year as the Chernobyl nuclear disaster. And I think it is very easy to see the idea of the warp and warp corruption as a stand-in for nuclear anxiety. Like the nuclear power of Three Mile Island or Chernobyl, although I don't think they were writing specifically about Chernobyl, GW Publishing seems to take quite a lot of time to get things done, certainly not creating major setting elements in months. But the warp gates were a source of power for the culture that created them. But an accident saw that power slip through their grasp and poison the world they inhabited. That energy, as Eberhauer says in the story, is the source of the most powerful abilities in the world, but also has the capacity to poison and corrupt. In particular, one thinks about the idea of the way in which this malignant energy is sort of seeping into the world, um, as capturing a British perspective on nuclear disaster. My own memory of hearing about Chernobyl as a child growing up in the 80s was that it led to thousands of Welsh sheep becoming radioactive as a result of this faraway explosion. And I think this idea that we might not necessarily be at the centre of a blast, but that the aftershock would get us anyway, was there in the slowly encroaching tide of chaos. Although, with things like Threads or V for Vendetta, the British also did a very clear lie in fiction about the Russians directly bombing them as well. Perhaps more straightforwardly than the above, the mutants of Warhammer Fantasy roleplay have clear antecedents in the mutants of the 2000 AD setting. Deformed and despised outsiders cast out into the wilderness. Over time, 2000 AD mutants became a symbol for the irrational fear of the other, whereas in the Warhammer setting, mutants would be smoothed over into those who were straightforward chaos monsters. But in the late 80s, their nature was in somewhat of a flux, and so we get this idea of the mutant who is experiencing madness alongside physical degeneration. This is probably the right choice for the bleakness of the setting. The futility is here again. Mutants haven't chosen to be the way they are. They haven't made a pact with chaos to get their strange claws or whatever. But this doesn't save them from what they are and what chaos will do to them. It provides the whole impetus for the story. Having said that, the Warhammer setting at the time dealt with the question of whether mutants were always inherently evil. In the seminal Warhammer fantasy roleplay campaign from 1986, The Enemy Within, the first thing you are invited to kill as a group of adventurers is a band of mutants. The mutants have come out of the woods and butchered a coachload of passengers. But the section in that book on mutants of the Empire makes it clear that mutants often fall into this kind of behaviour because they have been driven out of their homes and, are not, and don't have other ways to survive. Indeed, it is often emphasised that mutants become chaos worshippers out of desperation rather than because mutation draws you towards chaos. At several points in published materials, the role-playing game introduces the idea of mutant children and challenges players to think about whether they are inherently monstrous or not. Rereading this story for this podcast, I was struck that Siggy, who Katya says is only an accident victim, could actually be a mutant. 
Stefan is not wholly convinced by the explanation. And it raises the even murkier question of whether mutation is something that might lead to spiritual corruption and madness, but might not. And then what do we do? This is a Warhammer story in which there are no proper fantasy fight scenes, and the quality of the character studies are really some of the strongest in the anthologies. Characters have recognisable motivations, and the protagonist is a highly flawed individual who nevertheless goes on a journey over the course of the narrative that doesn't take him to any easy conclusions. It's really different from anything else I have read in the Warhammer world, and it's really good. It's also a story in which about half the named characters are women, and in which, as the Warhammer Fantasy rulebook seems to indicate, this is a world in which jobs are incidentally done by women. There was a lot of debate about the historicity, historicity, I think that's how you say it, of women adventurers in the pages of White Dwarf around this time, and the Warhammer Fantasy roleplay authors seem to have made a very clear choice that they are interested in essentially a gender-blind approach to careers. Ingrid, a sensibly dressed prospector, is the default example of career progression in the rulebook, although she is drawn with those Michelangelo-style glue-on boobs. And Griffiths does seem to have picked up on this. Women happen to work as guards, tavern owners and wizards, but their gender isn't commented on in these positions. Perhaps even more surprisingly is that many of these women are queer. Considering current debates about GW becoming woke, it is amusing to me that actually there were gay characters in the Warhammer canon before there were things like Eldar Aspect Warriors or Orc Clans. Griffith, as a lesbian writer, does a great job of making her gayness part of Eberhauer's character without making it the only thing about her. And I also like that it is a somewhat messy definition. Is Katja herself attracted to women? Stefan's friends seem to think so, but her actual relationship with Eberhauer is unclear, and possibly not one in which the power balance between them is entirely healthy. Katya seems to have more important things to worry about. Not to become too dreary about Games Workshop pivoting to kiddie games, which I feel is a dull take to make, but I am always really interested when you see something in the 80s GW output that ties it to the punkish and countercultural that it owed its conceptual DNA to in some respects. You've got to think about how this would be a fairly radical thing to include in, in, a, in a book for role players in the late 80s. You know, there's no Vampire the Masquerade yet. Here is a Warhammer story that is closer to early 80s Alan Moore output than it is to Star Wars, say. Indeed, if you wanted to do a deeper queer reading of the other, then the materials are certainly there. Here, after all, is a girl who has to abandon her family because of a sense of corruption and shame, fleeing to the big city to escape the fear that she might harm them. It's not mutation as an analogy for queerness, but the story gives us a nightmarish version of the anxiety that young queer people feel in homes that reject them. Am I a monster who will destroy my parents because I experimented with something I shouldn't? Looking at Griffiths' personal background, growing up gay in a devoutly Catholic household, you could see why this might resonate. Mutants are an abomination indeed. 
Indeed, the sense of uncertainty about what mutation is and what impact it has would have been a resonant anxiety for people growing up queer in the hostile homophobic environment of the late 80s. I really enjoyed this one. Griffith has got another story in Red Thirst, and I don't remember much about it, so I'm looking forward to giving it a read. That's it for this week. Please feel free to give your thoughts in the comments and to share the show with like-minded individuals. I think we're off to Marienburg next. <laughs>